I am uh, happy to report that our team departed for Africa Friday afternoon. We watched them, uh, I watched them on Flight Aware Friday night, tracking across the North Atlantic. They landed in uh, Amsterdam, and then from there they took a, another overnight flight down to Nairobi, Kenya. And just this morning, they took a short hop across the country of Kenya and are in Eldoret. And uh, we are blessed that they are there. I'm really looking forward to seeing what God uh, will do through them. There's our team, Dan, Dave, Kelly, Reagan, and others. And uh, I just look forward to hearing reports of how God's working through them. Remember to pray for them. This week, they're going to be there for a little over two weeks. So remember to keep them in prayer as they're going out from this body to share the love of Christ with, with the people in Kenya. So praise God for that. Well, back at home, we had a fun time last Sunday night. If you were with us for the Chili Bowl, that's Riverside's version of a chili cook-off and the Super Bowl together. And we had some 15 crock pots of chili. I tried every one of them, some twice. I've been on a diet ever since. And the winning chili was our fusion team. Now, yeah. So what you might not have known, it had their chili had all the normal ingredients, the meat, the tomatoes, the beans, and everything. But then each of the students got to pick another ingredient to put in the chili. Now, Dan controlled the whole thing, so it was all safe. But it had some gummy bears, some bacon, a heart-shaped donut, some outrageously hot sauce. And they came away with the championship ring. They had the winning pot of chili. Well, along with that, we also watched the game. And it was a really exciting game. I don't know if you're a big football fan, but we had some cheering going on. We had a little bit of heckling going on, especially when the referees were making some questionable calls. Most people seemed to be cheering for the Kansas City Chiefs. Everybody but John. <laughs> Maybe a couple others. But in the end, Kansas City pulled out a great victory, beating the Eagles by 38-35. to 35. Now, just imagine the feeling for those team members when after years of planning, investing, recruiting, and training, their team takes home the championship trophy. How exhilarating would that be? I mean, look at them as they're celebrating. And then on Wednesday, up to one million people packed the streets of Kansas City for the victory parade and celebration. Look at that sea of red. And then there's that guy up in the trees like Zacchaeus. <laughs> For the team he wanted to see, he climbed up in a sycamore tree. Now imagine for a moment that you knew all along that they were going to be victorious. Imagine watching the years go by. All of the ups and downs, the injuries, the setbacks. The hard times, the good times, yet you know they were going to be victorious. You just want to encourage them to keep going, right? Don't give up. Don't stop. Keep working hard. Press forward. You are going to have a great victory in the end. 
Well, that's really where we are as believers, isn't it? If you think about it, we're in the middle of a battle. But it's a battle that's already been won. See, it was won on the cross by God himself. And the victory for his team is absolutely certain. It's the most certain thing in all creation. It will happen. And God is communicating to us this certain outcome. He's doing it through his word. And he's encouraging us, keep going. Work hard, don't give up. There's a great victory in store. And this is what we're going to see this morning as we continue in our series called Absolute Certainty, a study of the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And this theme of certainty runs throughout those letters. And so this morning, the message title is Absolute Certainty of Victory. And we're going to be in 1st John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And the outline has three simple parts to it. First, we're going to look at the team in verse 1. And then secondly, the training in verses 2 and 3. And finally, the triumph in verses 3 through 5. Now, since it's only five verses, we'll read through the whole thing up front, and then we'll dig into it in more depth. So, beginning in 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only who, he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Well, let's look first at the team in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. The simple verse defines exactly who's on God's winning team. It's everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. But what does that mean exactly? Believing Jesus is the Christ. Well, Christ isn't his last name. People might think that. Have you heard people say, usually as a, as a swear, something like Jesus H. Christ? As though he has a middle initial and Christ is his last name? It's not a name at all. It's a title. It's a title and it means the anointed one. Or the chosen one. It's the Greek equivalent of another word in the Old Testament, Messiah. Same meaning. And back when we were in uh, 1 John chapter 3, we read, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. The name. Now his name, again, it's not just Jesus. That's not what we're believing in. His name means his reputation, his character, his renown. You could say, well, a person has a good name. It stands for all that they are and all that they've done. And for Jesus, this includes who he is, the son of God. It includes what he's done. He came in human flesh. He was sinless. He died, was buried, and rose again from the dead for our forgiveness. This is what it means to believe in the name of Jesus the anointed one. What we believe about Jesus matters. 
Because Jesus himself said in John 8, 24, he said, if you don't believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will surely die in your sin. So it's not just believing that he was a person. It's believing something about him. It's believing who he is and what he did. But now I want to take it one step further. It's not even just believing in the sense of like intellectual agreement or assent. It's more than that. It's not, yeah, I, I believe, yeah, I know Jesus really was a person and, and he died. It's, it's more than that. J James chapter 2 says even the demons believe that and shudder. So it's more than just believing. When you look at how this word is used in scripture, a better word would be trusting. When you trust in something, you put your whole weight behind it. You rely fully upon it. I have a, a favorite illustration that I like to use to illustrate the difference between simply believing and trusting. And I had a chance to share it this week with a, a lady who came to the church office. She had been raised with a little bit of Christian background, but she never understood the gospel. And so we had a chance to just unpack that for her. The illustration goes like this. In 1824, it's a true story, a French man named Jean-Francois Gravelat was born. And he went by the name Charles Blondin, and he later became known as the Great Blondin. And he was an acrobat, and he was a tightrope walker. And his greatest fame came from stretching a tightrope across Niagara Falls. It was 1,100 feet long and 160 feet above the water. And huge crowds would come to watch him walk on the tightrope across the falls. And when the crowds would thin out, he'd just add something new to his routine. One time he walked out there with the stove and he cooked breakfast on the tightrope over the middle of the falls. One time, as you see in this, this middle picture, he walked across the falls with his manager clinging to him. His manager was on his back. You. Well, one day, the crowds all gathered to see the great Blondin, and he did something new. He took a wheelbarrow, and he took the tire off the wheelbarrow, and he was going to roll it across the tightrope. And he said to the crowds, do you believe that I can walk across Niagara Falls pushing this wheelbarrow? And they all said, yeah, yeah, we believe you can do it. You're the great Blondin. We believe. And he looked at a man in the front. He looked right at him and he said, do you, sir, believe that I can walk across the falls pushing this wheelbarrow? And the man said, yeah, I believe. You're the great Blondin. He said, okay, get in. <laughs> the man, oh, no, 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 I'm not getting in. He said, well, wait a minute. You said you believed I could do it. Yeah, yeah, I believe. Get in. See, that's the difference between belief and trust. If you're trusting, you're putting your whole weight, your whole life behind it. Imagine getting into that thing. And like, not just half your weight, you got to get all the way in. And you got to sit down and hang on. And that's all you can do. Because if you're really trusting in Jesus, you're not trusting in yourself anymore. You're not trusting in your good works. You're not trusting in how much money you give. You're trusting only in Jesus and him alone. See, that's the difference. That's what this verse is saying. Those who trust 
in Jesus Christ are born into his family. Well, in verse 1 of our text, you see it there. Everyone who trusts that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that's the one who's born into his family. Now, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, through trusting in Christ. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And our verse says that those who trust in or believe in, in Jesus are born of God. We're his children by adoption. And Jesus, who is the son of God, becomes our brother. Think about that for a minute. He's God's son, and now we're God's child too. Jesus becomes our brother. Listen to what Hebrews 2.11 says. It says, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then Romans 8.17 says, now if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. I mean, we often think that, okay, we're a child of God, but do you realize you're a brother with Jesus Christ? Now, that doesn't make us a God, but we're brothers. We're treated just like God's own son, like his children, co-heirs with Christ. Hallelujah. And then the second half of verse 1 says, and everyone who loves the Father loves his children as well. Not only does Jesus become our brother, but other believers become our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a family structure that's even more significant than our biological family. I have five brothers and sisters. We share the same blood in the sense that we have mostly the same DNA. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, there's an even closer relationship there because we share the blood of Christ, which has cleansed us from our sin. And we share the same spirit. We have the same spirit of God within us. Our spiritual family in Christ is a closer bond than even our biological family. Jesus made this point. It was in Matthew chapter 12. He was inside a house and he was surrounded by this crowd of people pressing in. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See, Jesus elevated the relationship between him and his disciples above even that of his biological family. Now, when you look around you, what do you see? Just people? Some of them maybe you like. Maybe some of them you don't. Some are easy to get along with. Maybe some of them aren't. Do you see them as just people? Or do you see them as Jesus' brothers and sisters? That's who you're sitting next to. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And so no wonder it says, if you love God, you must also love his children. We're of the same family. We're on the same team. 
This is at least the fifth time that we've heard this in this letter. It's obviously something we need to be reminded of again and again. Let me just show you what we've already heard after this slide. <laughs> Look at this. John, 1 John 2.10. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. 3.14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. 1 John 3.17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must love his brother. And now we come to chapter 5, verse 1, and it says again, everyone who loves a father loves his child as well. It's because we're on the same team. Now, we're pretty good at drawing lines and dividing into groups, aren't we? We do that a lot. Two men were on a cruise ship together, and they began talking. And finally, one of them asked, do you believe in God? And the other said, yes. I asked, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. And I said, I am too. Protestant or Catholic? He says, Protestant. I said, me too. What denomination? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist conservative or Northern moderate Baptist? He said, Northern conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Are you of the Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Are you of the Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879? Or the Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, you heretic. <laughs> we like to divide. We like to break up into little groups. The command to love our brothers and sisters in Christ is not limited to just those in our local church or denomination or race or social status, or even political persuasion. We're to love all brothers and sisters in Christ. That includes even people of another color who might go to an inner city church, maybe an AME church, where they worship in a very different style than we do, and who might not vote the same way that we do. Now you might say, oh, wait a minute. That's where I draw the line right there. <laughs> if they're not of my political persuasion, then they're the opposition or the enemy. They're the cause of so many of the social woes we're facing. Maybe they are and maybe they're not, but they're on our team. They're on our team, and we're to love them. I'm not talking about compromising gospel truth, but if someone is a brother or sister in Christ, we're called to love them. See, heaven is going to be filled with brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, people, language. And we're called to love them all. Last week, Pastor Dan just covered John 17. And in that prayer, Jesus prayed 
that we would all be one as he and the Father are one. That as a church, collective, we would be united in Christ, that nothing would divide us. Well, that's the team. It's all those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. So let's look next at the training. Verse 2, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. I've said many, many times that God doesn't save us into isolation. He doesn't even save us and just swoop us away. He saves us and he puts us in a family with other imperfect sinners who've been saved, just like us. And he forces us to learn how to love God and one another. That's in fact our motto here at Riverside, a family of friends loving God and one another, right? And in that motto, you have the, the two greatest commandments, Jesus said. All of the law and the prophets are summed up in these two commands, to love God and love one another. Now that's easy to say, but how do we know if we're really loving one another? Well, verse two answers it. It says, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. A Sunday school teacher asked her third grade class, is there a commandment that teaches us how to, how to treat our brothers and sisters? And without hesitation, one little boy shot up his hand and he goes, yes, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> yeah, thou shalt not kill. But that's not the only command. If you, if you are a parent of more than one child, you probably know what sibling, sibling rivalry is all about, right? You've probably seen it. I've seen it. It's this ongoing conflict between children raised in the same household where they're in closed quarters. And this conflict comes out of our sin nature. And it's nothing new. You see it throughout the Bible, all the way back in the book of Genesis. Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, and on and on. Sibling rivalry often resulting in murder even. Brothers and sisters are not going to gravitate toward love and good deeds on their own. They have to be taught. Now in the parenting class that we have the privilege of leading, we do, of course, teach how to suppress wrong behaviors like hitting and pushing and tattling and stealing and, and all of that. But along with that, we also focus on training up children in the positive behaviors. We want children to learn how to esteem one another by doing things like listening attentively to a brother or sister, responding with basic courtesies, sharing property when it's appropriate, praying for each other. Do your kids pray for each other? Being happy when something good happens to a sibling, being genuinely happy for them. So there are, in the Bible, almost 60 passages that lay out what relationships with each other should look like. And I've listed just a few of them here. We're to love one another. We're to be devoted to one another. To serve one another. Submit to one another. Bear with one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Forgive one another. Teach one another. 
This is what verse 2 is talking about when it says, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. These are some of the commands it's speaking of. This is where our transformation from worldliness to godliness happens. It happens in community with other believers. God's placed us here. This is our training camp. This is where we work this stuff out. Now there's a, a troubling trend happening in, in post-COVID America. And it's that many believers, reported believers, are not returning to corporate worship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. This trend was the subject of a breakpoint commentary from the Colson Center this week. And it was titled, Why So Many Are Choosing Couches Over Pews. It referenced a study by researchers at the University of Chicago and it said this, the, the commentary said this, apparently large numbers of people who once identified as Christians have decided they no longer need to attend church. While COVID may have been the impetus behind this exodus, the root causes are persisting and go much deeper. Too many, Christ, too many Christians think of church as they would an event, concert, or a TED talk. Optional experiences that can just as easily be consumed remotely. It goes on, when combined with pastors and leaders who view the core purpose of a church as evangelism rather than discipleship or worship and are therefore willing to do whatever seems to work, success is just as easily measured by logons and views after the pandemic as it was by attendance numbers and growth before the pandemic. This, this article went on to make a, a really astute point. It said that the love between a husband and wife symbols love that Christ has for his church. It's, it's symbolized in marriage. And it said, you wouldn't try a purely virtual relationship with your spouse, would you? You shouldn't try a virtual relationship with Christ or his people either. Both require both require and deeply involve our bodies. And Christ could not have made this any clearer than he did by placing a family meal at the center of Christian worship, commanding us to take and eat. See, we were meant to be together in assembly with all of our brokenness, with all of our flaws. And we were meant to work out the commands of God, the one another's of scripture. Now, one of the good things that I think came out of COVID, it kind of forced us to live stream our services. And even post-COVID, it's, it's really proven to be a great tool for staying connected with those who might be homesick or who are traveling or even beyond that with some outside our church family. It's been great for reaching out in that way. In fact, our team in Africa is watching right now in their hotel room in Eldora, uh, Kenya. And so let me, if our, if our video operator would just pan out to the group, the group that's not in Sunday school, let's take a minute and let's just say hi to our team in Africa. Good morning, guys. What an awesome tool. You're, you're greeting someone halfway around the world through technology, and it's a great tool. But it was never meant to be a long-term replacement for corporate worship. It just wasn't. Sometimes I almost feel like, let's just unplug it. <laughs> now it wouldn't be right. But 
We can't practice the one another's of scripture online. Oh, Dan, Dan says hello. I just got a text. <laughs> Hi, Dan. I'm sure they had some jet lag. It's uh, about 7.45 at night over there now. So we can't practice these one another's of scripture online. Our transformation from worldliness to godliness can ha only happen in community with other believers. And that's why Hebrews 10.25 says this so clearly. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let's encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. The commands of God to love one another cannot be fulfilled in isolation. Rick Warren wrote this. He said, sometimes it may seem easier to be holy when no one else is around to frustrate our preferences. But that is a false, untested holiness. Isolation breeds deceitfulness. It's easy to fool ourselves into thinking we are mature if there is no one to challenge us. But real maturity shows up in relationships. Amen. I think that's really well said. Now, to fulfill the commands of God to love our brothers and sisters in Christ requires more than just a friendly greeting in the foyer on Sunday morning. It really does. It, it, it requires us to be involved in each other's lives. I've been so encouraged to see the strong sense of community that is developed amongst our men's ministry at Riverside. The Wednesday night men's macho men Bible study the Saturday morning recalibrate study, and now the Saturday and Monday kingdom leader uh, study. I had the privilege of trying to fill Dave's shoes and leading that Saturday morning. And this is where discipleship takes place. These men are studying and praying and fellowshipping and serving together. They're serving other members of the body together. And in doing this, they're loving their brothers and sisters in Christ and they're fulfilling the one another commands of scripture. Now I know the same thing is happening on the women's side and impact and valiant and flourish. I'm just not part of those in the same way. But this is what it means to fulfill the commands and this is how we know that we love God. We follow his commands and we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 3 ends by saying, and his commands are not burdensome. They're not. That's because when we really love God, we want to obey and please him. It's not hard. We want to please him by, by loving others. It, might, it, it, is, it is difficult. It is difficult, but it's not burdensome. We enjoy doing it. Jesus said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's because tasks take on a different meaning in a relationship of love. Let me give you an example of that. Think about a bachelor living in an apartment. There's some menial tasks that he probably skips over, like putting away the clothes, the laundry, cleaning the toilets, and just dusting and all of that stuff. Oh, I don't want to do that. But now he meets some, some young lady, and she's coming over for dinner. Guess what? All of a sudden, it's no problem at all to clean up that apartment, right? He's going to do everything he can to put that apartment in nice order so that it's pleasing. That's because tasks take on a different meaning in a relationship of love. It's the same way in the church. You see people painting with great smiles on their faces. 
moving mulch and serving one another. You see them coming in at seven in the morning for Bible study with smiles on their faces. It's just not burdensome because when we truly love God, it's our joy to do those kinds of things. Well, if you're looking for a way to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, one need has arisen recently. We have some members of this church family that can't attend in person anymore. They're in assisted living and they feel a bit isolated. We need some folks to just go down and spend some time with them, to pray with them, maybe read some scripture to them. If that's something you'd be willing to do, talk to me after the service or Maureen Phillips. We'd love to get you plugged into that. What a great way to show the love of Christ. What a great way to love our brothers and sisters. So, loving one another in the context of community is part of our training. Let's look finally at the triumph. Verses 4 and 5. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. He who is... Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John repeats us three times in these verses that the believers, or maybe I should call them the trusters. Maybe we should start saying that. I'm a truster in Christ. That's really what he's talking about, fellow trusters. The trusters will overcome the world. Overcome. It's, it's used 28 times in scripture and 24 times by John. He used it once in his gospel. He uses it six times in this letter. And then we see it 17 times in Revelation, the, the book that talks about how it all ends. And it's an important word. It means to conquer or to have victory or to have superiority. And it's not, it's not overcoming. It's not speaking of a close game like 38 to 35. It's not. It's speaking of having a superiority that leads to an overwhelming victory. We would call it a blowout. That's what this word means. A blowout. A tremendous, overwhelming victory. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've conquered it. Victory is in store. And verse 4 says, everyone born of God also overcomes the world. We too can have this overwhelming victory over the world. How? Not in our own strength, but through faith in the one who's overcome it. That's what verse 4 says. This is the victory that has overcome the world. It's our faith. Our faith. Through faith we share in Christ's victory. Let me go back to Niagara Falls for a moment. Around the same time as the great Blondin, there was another famous athlete and stuntman. This was an Englishman named Matthew Webb. He's a proud-looking fellow, isn't he? (laughs) I don't know if they all posed like that back then. But he was a great swimmer. He was the first man to swim the English Channel unassisted. That was in 1875. He was world-famous. It took him 22 hours to swim the English Channel. Well, in 1883, he set his sights on another challenge, the Niagara River. See, right below Niagara Falls, there's an area known as the Whirlpool Rapids. Matthew Webb planned to swim across Whirlpool Rapids, and it was a feat that was declared impossible 
it was his final stunt. Because as great a swimmer as he was, he died trying. He didn't make it. Now, on the other hand, you could say that the great Blondin overcame the falls. I mean, he crossed over it 300 times on his tightrope. They estimate that he walked a total of 10,000 miles on a tightrope over his life. And he died of natural causes. He overcame the falls. Now, if you were there around that time and you had to get across those falls, how would you do it? By swimming? By clinging tightly to that rope and trying to crawl your way across it? No. I'd do it by getting in the wheelbarrow and trusting the guy who has overcome the falls. That's how I'd do it. See, you could let his victory secure victory for you. That's what this verse is talking about. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes or trusts that Jesus is the Son of God. We overcome the world by trusting in the one who has overcome the world. By trusting in the one who has won this tremendous victory. And when we do, we're part of his family. We're on the team. And that same victory is ours. Listen to what lies in store for those who overcome the world. Not by their own strength, but through faith in Christ. Revelation 2.7. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is a victory that is in store for those who trust fully in Christ, not in themselves. It becomes our victory because of what Jesus did in overcoming the world. Not only will we be victorious on that glorious day when the Lord comes back for us, but we can be victorious over the world and its evil schemes every day. We can overcome the pressures and the temptations of this evil world. We are talking about that in the, in the leader, leadership class on Saturday. We can overcome because Christ has overcome. And he's placed his spirit in us. We talked about willpower. It takes willpower, our will and his power. See, we have to want to do it. And when we go to him and draw upon his power, he gives us that power to overcome a wicked world. We're not going to do it perfectly. But again, it's not about perfection. It's about what? Progress. Moving more toward godliness. We'll overcome the world by the power of him who lives in us. And then on that final day, a day that will bring swift judgment and destruction to the rest of the world. Those whose faith is solely in Christ, those who are on his team, who demonstrate it by loving his children, they'll share in a sweet, overwhelming victory. It's absolutely certain. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your saving work in our lives. It's not by our work, not by our strength or might, but by your grace through faith 
I thank you for Pat's testimony this morning, God, of how you saved her. Many of us in this room have a similar testimony of your unfailing, undying love. And God, I do thank you that you don't save us into isolation, but you save us onto a team of believers, broken people, where we can learn what it truly means to love God and one another. And God, I pray that we would be a church that learns from your word, that loves you and loves each other deeply, that prays, that worships, that evangelizes, that serves one another. God, a church that would bring you great glory. I pray that our lives would be centered around you as we meet together regularly in this place and in our homes, God, as we pour over your word and we apply it to our lives. And God, I ask for your continued blessing upon this church that we call Riverside, that we would be all that you've called us to be and that we would love you above all else and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. God, thank you for this great victory that we have in Christ. And it's you that we give all the glory to. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.